Welcome to the Writing Block Podcast, where we talk all things writing and indie publishing. Today's episode is all about the art of world building and features Rachel Sparks, the author of Resistant. Your hosts are founding members Christopher Lee and the quietly award-winning author Jackie Castle. For more information and to purchase your very own writing goat, visit writingblock.com. To understand what a writing goat is, please enjoy our other podcast episodes. Thank you for listening, and thank you for all of your support. Welcome, guys, to the uh, what is this? The third third edition of the Writing Block podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about world building and our writing practice. Uh, I've got Rachel Sparks and Jackie Castle with me here today. Rachel, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your writing practice and, and why you wanted to jump on and talk about world building. Hey, well, thanks for having me, you guys. Um, I'm Rachel Sparks. I wrote a novel called Resistant. It's uh, kind of a Michael Crichton-esque uh, speculative sci-fi, imagining what the world would be like if antibiotics no longer worked, which is um, kind of right around the corner. And it was published in 2018 in October. So I'm kind of new to the calling myself a writer scene, but I... Um, come from a background of science and startups. I'm a microbiologist by training, and I, I went into transplants for a long time, and then I worked for a startup um, in infection prevention in hospitals. And so I've always kind of known a lot about infections and resistance and things like that, and um, that's what inspired my first novel. So I um, that has been fun, a, quite an adventure, and now I am I'm kind of shopping around my next novel, which is a little bit less science-y, but still um, I love science fiction. Jackie invited me on and I have, she had learned more about my most recent work in progress. So she thought I'd like to explore world building, which was definitely a part of my first one and has been um, an interesting path on the second one as well. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the second one, Rachel? It's a novel set both in 1720s um, colonial America and also current time in New England. And it's about two women related from 300 years apart and a, a witch trial that took Ooh. part took place back there in Maine. Yeah. And it was based on some real people that I had uh, stumbled across while I was traveling Maine and not real. I didn't stumble on them myself, but figuratively speaking in some museums and uh, there had been some witch trials there. There had been a lot of privateering activity there. Um, you know, pirates that were actually under, um, letters of mark from the king that ordered to do the the, the pirating and so uh, it just kind of led me to think about a, a a novel set there and um sort of from the point of actually it was around 2017 when i had first released my my novel um in ebook on amazon and we were traveling in maine and i and i had just released that one and then the next one came to me so um in the current time a cdc epidemiologist is assigned to her last um investigation in Maine. And she uh, kind of discovers that the the current case that she's investigating two boys being very ill um, may be related to something that happened 300 years before, which she says is about her ancestor. And the story tells itself, reveals itself um, through both the 1700s period and the current one. And it's kind of fun. A little bit of magical realism in there, a little bit of witchiness and sci-fi, little thriller. Oh, you got to love magical realism and witchiness. <laughs> I'm not as good at it, honestly, as a lot of the, the young adult writers out there right now that are really into it. But I like them. That's because they're all pretend witches. <laughs> or real witches. What 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 do we know? Mm, <laughs> potentially. Potentially. 
I know Lev Grossman's done his work. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I just love the 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 ways that medicine and magic in the past were really intertwined, mm. and so I wanted to explore that. Right on. Thanks for sharing, uh, Jackie. Why don't you go ahead and and tell us a little bit about your experience with world building, uh, specifically with that wonderful award winning seclusion book of yours? Congratulations on that, by the way. Oh, thanks so much. I still haven't quite processed it, I don't think. Yeah, world building is kind of, it's been a lot of fun, but it's also been, you know, a real challenge to kind of hone the skill in. I think when I first started writing, um, as we've talked about before, it's a lot of word vomit in the beginning and just kind of stream of consciousness writing. Um, And so I really enjoy the challenge of kind of going back and combing through each scene. I think world, the challenge of world building to me is how to, um, you know, put a writer in or a reader in my scene without overtelling. And so how do how do you pick a few senses like either smell or touch or sight and just kind of uh, put those into every single scene that you write? And how do you do that through dialogue instead of uh, just through info dumping has always been, you know, kind of a fun little puzzle. I tend to keep a few documents open, you know, on Scrivener, you know, that detail kind of the different rules of my world. Uh, also a timeline and, you know, use that a little bit to keep track of what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) And and so that's been, you know, it's been fun. And I think writing, I'm writing two other novels right now. One is a sequel to uh, the first, to The Seclusion. Um, But it also, you know, it takes place in multiple settings, uh, the next book. And so that's been interesting too, because even though, you know, it's the same year, there's a a lot of, of kind of different worlds happening in the second book. And so, you know, writing down my cheat sheets for the rules that I have to follow in each of those worlds um, and when I'm alternating between characters. So I imagine, Rachel, that's a little bit of the same for you as to not accidentally have one character that's taking place in the past, you know, follow the same rules as one from the future. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I love the idea of the, you know, not overtelling because I, I think it's it's a real challenge to try to weave your world building into dialogue and not just scene setting and it's Mm -hmm. it's an art and what Mm. do you do chris to kind of keep track of all that chris writes fantasy so i'm sure that's a whole different ball game (laughs) you know actually when when she invited me on the show i told her i don't think that applies to me because i feel like that's all in the fantasy world it's so hard you know oh absolutely not you guys just Um, create such an entire different literal world and it blows my mind well I mean, I started out in science fiction. That's, you know, but it was more fantasy science fiction oriented. I, you know, was heavily influenced by Star Wars. <laughs> you know, I was like, in fact, one of the first projects I ever started working on in writing was in my teens was, was trying to write like a Star Wars fan fiction, you know, a whole new universe to open up into uh, for Star Wars fans. And that slowly morphed into this kind of like space fantasy and world building there was pretty much all I ever did with that project was was all me and my friend ever did was uh, was develop the rules and the systems. And and if you really look at it, I think science fiction is very similar to fantasy in that regard. You have to have uh, certain physical rules uh, for, like, say, space flight or, or something like that. If you're doing something in space, um, if you're talking about hard science in science fiction, there are definite rules that you have to to build into the world, even if you're changing mm-hmm. some of the uh, rules of our current world that we're basing a lot of this science out of. So I think it, it's not it's not quite as different. Uh, a lot of science fiction does have the tendency to stick within the modern day. So you don't have to do, say, as much world building as you might in a fantasy. I, I don't think that they're that uh, that different. Um, you can take it as far as you want. <laughs> 
fantasy does have have has a tendency to overdo it. I know I do. I'll get stuck in world building land for days because that's <laughs> one of the parts that I really enjoy. And then when it comes down to write the actual story, I'm like, but I could just continue <laughs> world building. That's why I'm I'm confident in stating that I am much more of a world builder than I am an author <laughs> because that's it's what I do best is 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 build these you know immense worlds. And then, and then in the process of writing my book, tend to info dump way too much in my first few drafts. And sometimes even in the final draft, there, there's points where I'm like, yeah, they didn't need to know that. It was cool to you, but it may not be cool to them. Okay. So, I mean, and, and as far as my process goes, I, I don't know if I have a full on process. I use a lot of different tools. Like one of the ones that I'm using for one book currently mm-hmm. is uh, novel factory. And that's a, a, a software that you can use on on your uh, browser like Chrome or something like that. They also have a, an app for uh, Windows computers and such. But they it allows you to like input your characters, uh, put all the backstory in. It has like fields with specific questions about what's your even like what's the toothbrush color of your character. You know, <laughs> like it's super detailed, so you can you can craft these really intricate character bios. And then they also have a place for settings where you can get into the sights, the smells, the, you know, the time period, this, that, and the other thing. Um, and I've found that to be a wildly helpful tool in keeping everything in one place because before I would just open up a word doc and start writing stuff out. And then you're, you're talking about getting into heading levels of one through 20 (laughs) and bullet points and, and trying to keep track of, of all this cool stuff that you're putting in from, geography to language or cultures or what their death customs are or you know all this stuff that is going to be like a tiny little reference from one character that that might be super impactful to their life and you need to know it but i think the, one of the powers of of world building in general and this is kind of going a little bit off topic is is how well it can inform you as the author as to what is important for that character I think one of the things that a lot of authors suffer from is not having a sufficient world uh, build before they start writing. And then thematically or in the character arc, they don't have enough material to draw Mm -hmm. from. They don't know how this person feels or why this person feels, uh, you know, this particular way. They don't have that, uh, that stark moment when the character decided that this is the way that they're going to be, you know, before the beginning of the story. So I don't know. I'm just in love with the process myself. <laughs> uh, I have bunches of uh, bunches of questionnaires and, and uh, all kinds of docs that I can go through and I try to, you know, fit into one master doc and it almost always gets too overwhelming. <laughs> it always seems to me like the process that must happen for scene builders that are literally scene builders for movie sets, mm. because you know, you're really trying to to paint this this portrait of every given spot in your story, you know, whether it's a, a school or whether it's a, a restaurant or whether it's a hospital. And and then you can't just simply say you're at a restaurant. You know, you really want it to be just lush with these details that you may not even tell the reader, but they're there for you to draw from, mm-hmm. like you say, and the same for characters. But um, it's it's a fun it always makes me think that would be a fun, fun job. <laughs> probably, <laughs> maybe, probably not actually, but it, in my head. Maybe I'm in the wrong line of work. Do you do any of that at all? I know with the seclusion, like there was a few scenes, especially, um, you know, there's like a, a childhood classroom scene. 
that was really supposed to kind of invoke a little bit of North Korea vibe. And there were some other scenes and I definitely, you know, pulled pictures online and made myself little collages. Mm. Yeah, that's <laughs> that a good one. I sketched it. in the corner of my um, my manuscript, uh, just trying to almost do the blocking, like almost as Rachel describes, so that I could then write the scene. Um, I don't know if you guys found yourselves doing that at all, but I found that when I did that, there were times that I didn't, that I definitely came up with a much more uh, immersive setting. Mm. Yeah. I, um, even if I wasn't describing it word for word. I, I tend to do that. Uh, I, there's a lot of artwork involved in my world building. So sometimes I'll commission an artist to do a portrait or, uh, okay. or draw a map, uh, or I, I like doing that myself, like for Nemeton, uh, that whole world, I built out a map. One of the first things I did was where is everything? Because I can't tell the story if I don't know the lines. So one of mm-hmm. the processes in fantasy building is in particular is, is mm-hmm. the map. You got to know where everything is before you can start putting your characters in the world. Um, and, and you got, and that helps inform where, you know, where they're from, what they're like, and you have to kind of build out, you know, several different cultures and, and, and the geography they come from before you do anything else, <laughs> because you can't tell the story without all that knowledge. Um, or I guess you could try, you could try, but I think it'd be fairly difficult. <laughs> I read a great, um, I it was actually a beta reader for a really great blog post by an author who, um, as part of her world building, she uses her linguistics PhD and she, she was teaching mm. other writers about your your palate and literally where we make the noises that make our language um, in our in our throat, mm. in our palate, in all these different parts of your your um, mouth and throat. And it was just so fascinating because she was explaining that if you're building a new language or new, um, you know, not to the the level of like a Tolkien language, but if you're just sort of imagining what the names would be spelled like and pronounced like and um, and how the the root words would play together. She was a, It was just fascinating because she was explaining that between different cultures, there there are some noises none of us make. That in English language, there's certain mm, noises yeah. we don't use, and in um, in Scottish tongues, there's you know a and I can't remember the terminology for it, but the kind of h of an h. Um, it just it was really eye opening. It was really fun to be a beta reader for her. And the only feedback I had was. You know, you said that we don't make the certain language noise noise in our language. Well, how do you do it? <laughs> I want to hear what it sounds like, <laughs> and it, that's why I think that fantasy world build, building is like just hearing you li- list off how you do it, it. It feels like what Sim City building must be, <laughs> but on the grandest yeah, scale ever. It you is. set your characters loose in this world. It's crazy. Yeah. No, I mean the most I've done is mapped out a hospital, so I remember which floor the labs on. Yeah, but there's there's something to be said for that as well. I mean, uh, even in in worlds that are not immense, you know, epic fantasy in particular is like the grand poobah of all <laughs> world building, right? You're building these immense worlds and huge character arcs, but but when we're talking about a more intimate piece, you can get super detailed as well. Like you mapped out a hospital. That's huge. I mean, there's a there's a huge level of detail there and I think that that because you did that, I, I have no doubt that that informed the story in, in more ways than you can count. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, too, it's not always about inventing a world from scratch. It's also about coming up with the mm-hmm. rules for a world that has changed. Yes. Um, and so, you know, your story is kind of an apocalyptic 
story where half the population is now gone. And so you have to discover what are the rules for your character within this setting. Yeah. And that in itself that is world really... building also. Mm. Um, it doesn't mean you're inventing yeah. a new place like, you know, they do in a lot of fantasy novels, but you are, the world is completely different than it is now. Yeah. And that was where kind of resistant got kicked off because we were using this statistic in our um, startup about the fact that by 2050, 10 million people per year were going to die from resistant infections. And the number was too staggering for me to really comprehend. You know, you, you need some social math just to illustrate what that was. So I had compared the populations of different cities and it was, you know, it was like adding New York City to Charlotte or San Antonio and everyone in them died. And it was, it was a very interesting world building process. And in the sense of, kind of test out your theories of what the world would be like if something like that happened. And it's not, you know, it's not a zombie apocalypse. It's sort of that slow loss of life and struggle and the, the strain that it would put on different systems and processes and, um, and nations. And it, it was a fascinating step through. I, I spent a lot of time just researching, you know, how the power grid works and who who controls it and how many people do you need to run it? That's an important uh, thing to note. Um, I think one of the things that people uh, associate with world building in particular, like with the fantasy thing is, is inventing this whole new world, but world building in, in a setting such as yours or, or Jackie's, there's a lot of researching that goes into it, understanding what's actually happening in our world so that we can better define this new world and that change that Jackie was talking about. But that research, I think, falls squarely into the world building category because it seems to me, at least, that you have to know the world you're writing about before you can write it. Um, you may have an opinion about mm -hmm. that world, but unless you go in and, and research, like you said, the power grid, then your story is going to be ill-informed. Yeah, I remember looking up where I was placing my um, beginning of my plot because really it was on a an area of um, New England or Massachusetts, and this is resistant, was predicted to be quite flooded by the time 2050 rolled around. So um, if, you know, the climate change maps that mm. show you where the water's going to be getting to, I was like, I'm not really sure that that, Woods Hole, Massachusetts will be there much anymore. Florida's completely gone in my book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those poor old people. They were probably relocated. <laughs> I have to go back probably? and read it one of these days. I don't know. Go, I don't go check your world building Bible. Okay, that's what I call mine at least. It's like my, my Bible for all things in the story. In case I'm like, what was that name again? Of that one guy oh. who did that one thing a long time ago. I want to hear what resources you guys use. Okay. Because I've found a few, but I love to hear about new ones that are obscure. There's a few different just sites that if I, when I'm writing science fiction uh, or dystopian, and maybe if I'm just kind of grasping for, you know, something that's maybe changed uh, or, you know, new advancements on the horizon, I will sometimes like cruise through Indiegogo <laughs> or I'll cruise through other crowdfunding sites for people that are working on these inventions and then just imagine, oh, what if this became standard? And so I do do a lot of that. I'll, I'll look through tech journals, you know, mm. just to, something to spur the imagination a little bit and then take it to its la largest extreme, you know, is something that I do. And then I did a lot just of researching other uh, other cultures and um, how they live. And so kind of a combination of the two of of looking towards what might happen in the future and then look towards, you know, how other people are living in the present and then 
smushing them together a little bit. Because you did a lot of research on North Korea, right? I did. I did a lot of research on North Korea and Russia that went into that. But then I also, you know, did a little bit of science fiction. And in the seclusion, a big point there is that there is advancement and has evolved, but our country has not evolved as much as it should have in 70 mm-hmm. years. Um, so though there's a little bit of sci-fi going on, there's, there's an obvious stunting happening too. And so the reader's left wondering uh, why. Um, but then in the second book, there will be a little more, I won't be too spoilery, but there will be multiple characters' points of view and we will get a view of what's happening in the rest of the world. And it's very, very different. I'm um, excited about so that. that. That's been a little fun too. <laughs> But yeah, so I think just whenever I'm stuck, I do like to pull from some of those resources that I mentioned. And then just also, you know, grab a book that's a similar genre and just let another author inspire mm, me a little bit. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting because you you mentioned like you're looking through Indiegogo for like new inventions, if you will. And you're you're kind of like asking yourself the question, OK, what if this went haywire? How would it change our world? That's that's a really fascinating uh, yeah. way of looking at things. Or not even hay, not always haywire. You know, I do do that because I I tend yeah. to be, <laughs> I tend to go to those uh, pessimistic mm-hmm. extremes probably. Um, but I think there's a hopeful note in there. Um, but also, just what if it became commonplace? So yeah, not how, all of it's it bad, right? Not all of it's bad, but it may just be. Oh, what if we use this little gadget regularly? Um, you know, what would that look like? Well, uh, what, what if this was a, a regular form of entertainment for people instead of what we have now? I'm sure nobody thought that cell phones would t- make the world completely crazy and haywire. <laughs> and they probably still don't think that it's doing that, but they'd be wrong. Oh my gosh, I was watching, I think it was maybe The Daily Show the other, and it was, I think it was a, a episode from last week. They were saying that they've actually seen the first evidence that our skulls are changing. Oh, is this the, from uh, the f- cell phone use? Like bone. we have like an extra little bone. <laughs> In the back of our skull now. (laughs) It's insane. You know, that that totally makes sense to me. We we perceive so much more energy. Our bodies are collecting so much more data uh, all the time that we are not consciously aware of. And I'm telling you, like, you know, subconsciously our body knows what's happening and it's developing a defense mechanism (laughs) against it, obviously. (laughs) It's really fascinating. The body's way smarter than we are. They were saying it wasn't from like the use of the phone. It was actually from the angle that we all put our heads in for a large portion of the day, even if it's unintentional. I still want to read this article. So I heard about it. Wait, wait, don't tell me. But, uh, you know, as like someone who knows about evolution, I'm thinking, no, but this doesn't make sense. I mean, it couldn't have happened in one generation. (laughs) We haven't even really had a generation. Wait a minute. But that is, to me, the, the best like end of life scenario is that at some point, someone from the government calls me and says, how did you figure out what we're doing? Because you wrote about something that we're doing that's super high, classified and top secret, and you thought it up, so you must know something from someone. That's what I want to have happen. <laughs> They'll just show up on my doorstep. I right? don't think they're going to ask that nicely. <laughs> Most likely. Or you might end up in some van somewhere. Uh, so, see, and this is why I write fantasy, folks. Uh, they're not going to come at me for that. Uh, at least I don't think so, unless mm. unless Jackie writes us into some dystopic <laughs> future where magic is banned. Uh, I think yeah. I'm safe. <laughs> I might. I might do that now. Oh, crap. See, she's just trying to get rid of me. Well, my next story is about oh, a bunch so of scientists that, that are just fed up and seek revenge. Yeah. And so that, that'll be fun. I want to be a beta reader for that. So I might may get in trouble for that one. We'll see. <laughs> so going back to the resources, I I'd previously mentioned Novel Factory, which I think is, is an incredible one. There's free trials that you can can try out. 
Um, and I, uh, you know, I recommend everybody try it out because it gives you such a, a good idea of what you need to be thinking about once you start crafting a story. Uh, there's so much that goes by the wayside. I know that once I start world building, I, I reach a certain point where I'm like, okay, I feel like I know enough and I've got to start writing this thing or else I get stuck in world building black hole. Then I'll end up going back and have to have to answer a certain amount of questions. I'll write myself into a corner and I'll be like, okay, why does this character, why is this character doing this? We've moved this character from point A to point B. Now they're in a different location. What's that feel like? And so Novel Factory is a huge resource for that. I also use um, a book called World Building Warrior. And it's like 180 pages of just questions about your story and your world, which can be helpful. Like, and, and the way I recommend using that one is, is try and answer like four or five of those questions a day. And you don't have to, you don't have to think about it as uh, I have to answer every single detail. What you're doing is, is you're looking at that at your world from different angles. I mean, and I think that's all world building is in the beginning is figuring out, okay, if this happens, what, what happens in my world? Um, and, and how does it affect the characters? Uh, how does it help me drive the story uh, where I want to drive the story? Um, and, and that one's been a, an immense help. I've been using that on my most recent project. It's been incredibly useful. Even if most of the stuff isn't going to end in the, end up in the story, I've got a much better picture uh, of what this world is like, and I feel like I will be much more capable of, of rendering that in, in, that does sound really in, helpful. in, in a yeah. more yeah. appropriate way. I'm going to pick that up. Yeah, I, I can't remember where I got it from. I'm going to have to look it up, but I can send it to you guys later. But if you just Google like world building warrior book, I'm pretty sure it'll come up. But I think I mm. bought it for like 12 bucks and it's actually comes in a PDF that's fillable. Oh, fun. So you don't have to like open a different world, uh, nice. different thing. You can just copy the PDF and then fill it in. Mm. And then you have like it all in one central location. What uh, it doesn't go into like characters at, like Novel Factory does or settings necessarily. But it does take you through like geography, mm-hmm. culture, religion. Uh, what's the science level like? What's and and I think there might even be like a magical system thing in there because it's you know world building like you guys said is geared towards fantasy. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. interesting. Side note to Michael who's editing this, but we should have a resource list at the bottom of all of these no. episodes. Yeah, Michael, get to work. <laughs> <laughs> so we can cut that out now. <laughs> Feed that part of the show goat. Right. The That's show right. goat. Feed we have a goat. show goat now. <laughs> goat. Now he's going to have to leave it in, right? The podcast goat. They are really comfortable t-shirts too. Uh, I'm going to have to get oh, good. one for anyone wanting to order one. Yeah. you gotta. Did you send me the link for where to buy it? I think I uh, texted it to okay. you. I'll get on that. I'll get on that. Um, <laughs> my secret weapon for uh, for looking into my new world has this specifically because I was dwelling in a past world in the 1700s. And even though there's not a lot of photos from the 1700s, um, I used, I stumbled at the New York Library's digital. Um, they had this trove. It's amazing. It's an image library. It has advertisements, old maps. It's just got everything you can imagine that could be visual. And it's all free. Ooh. And they ha- so this massive New York Public Library digital resource that I can just dig through for inspiration of what what the area looked like before it was, you know, settled, what it looked like before it was busy, before there were highways, what the coastlines looked like, because I was setting this on a coastline, there was mm-hmm. a, a lighthouse involved, and, um, and digging into some of the 
the witch history required me to also look for some public library resources that are just recently becoming digitized because I couldn't fly to New England and do the research I wanted to do. Um, but it's it's really fun if you start digging around the should you be you know looking into something that's historical the the number of digital library resources that are out there but they're you know they're kind of isolated they're stranded systems technologically speaking because you know there's there's not one universal library so I I have library cards all over the United States that I've never <laughs> been to the library but um, that New York Public Library one is so much fun to dig through and it's it really me- interesting. I just, I worked visually really well. So that, that gave me just so many great inspiration yeah, that, thoughts of the, the way that a town might be laid out. Um, mm-hmm. It was, it's fun. It's a place to, to, to lose a few hours. And I would imagine even if it's not um, like historical, even if you're just writing, you know, about a, a point. state that you don't live in mm-hmm. and maybe can't spend as much time as you want there. That's a great resource. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's an important distinction to make, you know, because again, people think of world building, they think of creating a whole new world. Um, and that's not always the case, uh, for, for one of my current projects, uh, Akultari is what I'm calling it now because it's not complete, but I called it westward for a while. And it, it resides in the past in, um, like pre-civil war, mm. like alternative timeline. So I had to go back and in my world building, <laughs> try to, uh, research all these locations, what, what they used, uh, for, for clothing or, or what their dialect was like. I have a whole book here, the writer's guide to everyday life in the 1800s. So I could get the lingo down and, and that, that in a way is world building as well. And again, that kind of goes to that whole researching thing. You're trying to craft the world in a certain way. So you have to know all this information and, and yeah, I, I found so much wealth of information on the internet, but I didn't even think about public libraries. That's a huge resource. Thank you for that. Yeah. And I've had a lot of fun here in our local one because, you know, we both, um, Jackie and I both in Asheville have this, um, North Carolina collection, which is why I say that I ended up having a lot of, um, different States, little collections, but you know, a lot of States have their own collections that they're slowly digitizing. And, um, the resources are so varied. I mean, even then, um, even the property cards that exist in North Carolina and specifically in our County have been made digital because there was, a a local like register of deeds director who championed the cause. He found all these records that were actually slave trading records that are buried inside of the, the exchange of property records. And it was just so fascinating um, to, to kind of dig into them because you're looking for, you know, this piece of property was transferred in 1700s, but you'll find that it came with people and those people's children and their whole family uh, line is sketched out in, in a property card. It's just, it's, it's mind boggling, but because so many people are starting to champion the idea of digitizing these records, there's a lot of them out there. You just sort of have to, you know, just sort of Google the hell out of it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But yeah, New- I put it in the show notes where digitalcollections.newyorkpubliclibrarymypl.org. It's it's so much fun to dig through. Yeah, I, I just grabbed that <laughs> link so that we can give it to Michael later so the podcast goat doesn't eat it. <laughs> All right, so let's go on to another question here. Uh, what's your favorite part of the world building process? Research and um, I I love building a a, a playlist to type to. When I write, I need to have music going. So I usually build a playlist that 
describes the place and the mood to me. So if, you know, I do that mm-hmm. as well. If I hear, yeah, yeah. You're not alone in that. So that's really fun for me is sort of figuring out which, which songs are going to be, first of all, something that you can listen to 1800 times over, right? <laughs> exactly. To, but, um, yeah. What can you put up with repetitively? But uh, yeah, the research is just so much fun to me to seek out those, those inspirations. And, and for me, traveling does it too, because um, being in Maine gave me that feel for what I wanted the novel to feel like, but literally the weather, the, the sand, the, um, the moss growing on granite. That's, that to me is um, a great part of the experience if you have the ability to, but you know, not all of us can, can, I want to set a novel in Iceland. I don't know if I'm going to go there. Yeah. I can't go back to the civil war. No. Unless somebody builds a time machine. I hear the reenactments are pretty lifelike. Yeah, but they don't have vampires in there. <laughs> you just got to show up as the vampire. You got to be the vampire. I was going to say, be yeah. Be the vampire. I grew up near Antietam. Because you haven't brought them. <laughs> yeah, I grew up near, near Antietam Battlefield. You'll get chased out of there. People take it very seriously. But you should try. You should show up as a vampire. <laughs> But getting chased out of there by a musket, I mean, that's an experience that you could write. It's, it's something you can learn from. And then I'll have to incorporate a character that would run from that fight. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that my main character would. <laughs> part, maybe one of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, how about, a, how about a least favorite part of the process? Is there any part that's particularly grueling or... Or just kind of turns you off? I think just for me, it's kind of just the rechecking. I'll find that as the drafts go on, you know, maybe the rules of my world have changed or a character has changed or, you know, suddenly this person can't do this because I I changed the first scene and, you know, suddenly Mm -hmm. they're not in this place at this time. That's grueling to me is just making sure that it all Mm. it all uh, still makes sense and that I'm not going to be confronted by a reader with a a gaping plot hole. (laughs) Me as well. Yeah. The idea that somebody with a PhD in, you know, moss on granite would have an objection to <laughs> the moss that I put. Oh, well, you're always going to have that kind of person. <laughs> Don't even worry about that person. They're probably not even reading your book because they're too busy writing their book on moss growing on that's granite. Um, how do you keep track of the rules then? So if, if that's if that's the most taxing part of the process, what sort of systems or best practices can you recommend to our wonderful listeners? Uh, on how to uh, keep that all uh, bound up tight in an easily accessible place. I think Scrivener is great for that. It's still, you know, I've tried lots of the other writing tools um, and that's still my favorite just for keeping tabs on everything. Uh, I I won't say that I'm, you know, the epitome of someone who uses it (laughs) correctly. Uh, I would definitely try to be a little more, um, you know, conscious of that when I'm making changes with, with all my work going forward. But if I were to have done that correctly each time, then I, I know exactly which file I would have gone and changed the rules in. So I have to make sure to keep up with it. It <laughs> sounds brilliant. That sounds so much more organized. I I probably would have, um, if, if a publisher let me, I would have a like a bibliography in my fiction <laughs> because mm. I keep a, a running Google spreadsheet of my my sources especially especially for the science things because Mm -hmm. i like for my science fiction to be very and i know the term is hard science fiction but that just sounds so weird to me but it's very grounded in um legitimate science so i've if i've read something that informed a plot point or backed up a scientific concept i have that whether it's a peer-reviewed public you know journal article or, or it's an atlantic 
monthly kind of thing. I, I have all those in a, in a file. So I've always wanted to footnote my fiction. <laughs> Someday I will. It's <laughs> an interesting concept. You could be educating at the same time as entertaining mm-hmm. in this case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Crichton was apparently the first to do that. And as a big Crichton geek, as a youngster, I was always fascinated by that because he would have, you know, you'd be reading like a five by eight paperback of his and half the page would be eaten up with a footnote that just explained the the background of how were taught to speak. I mean, it was just and it was legitimate science that he was he was literally footnoting his fiction with real science. Interesting. It, does that count as info dumping then? Is that taking your <laughs> taking your reader out of the story uh, just to show off your prowess? I'm sure it is. I kind of like the idea of it though because the reader doesn't have to look at the footnote. Mm-hmm. Like they can choose to. You know, Here it's not go. like a paragraph in the middle of the story. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start info dumping this yeah. way in my fantasy books. There's an author uh, <laughs> an, with the same publisher that I used that did a lot of the footnotes. Um, and it was like sometimes I'd look at them because it was a part of the story where I felt like I could take a minute to look at them and sometimes I'd finish the chapter and then I'd go back and look at them real quick so that I could, you yeah. know, keep within the story and with the pace. Yeah. And it's in like well, a micro found... font, you know, it's in like 2.8 point font. So, right. you know, you need a magnifying glass for it anyway, but it's fun stuff. <laughs> <laughs> How do you, uh, let, that kind of leads us into this one. How do you flesh out your world for the reader while avoiding the trap of overtelling? Try to think if it's something a character could say. Because I, I, I tend to struggle with like under dialoguing. <laughs> oh. So anytime I can give myself an opportunity for the, you know, to flesh out a conversation that characters are having, I try to take it. Um, and that kind of kills two birds with one stone there. Um, that, so that's one of the tricks that I do. And the other is just, does it need to be said in this many paragraphs? Like, is there a way, you know, and most of the time it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I probably over dialogue. So I have the inverse problem, but. I think I look for ways that the the character looking at and experiencing the um, world uh, reveals something about their own personal trajectory. So if they are um, examining the the world around them, or the weather, or the the way the town is laid out, or the the way the lighthouse is built, it helps them think about themselves. So that, I think that's usually how I. I limit myself that it, it almost has to serve a plot point or a character build. That's a good practice and a good principle to implement. I think um, I, I tend to do the same thing. I ask myself, usually my first draft is full of it because it'll just come out of me and I'll be like, that's really cool. Don't want to lose mm-hmm. that, you know, <laughs> write it in. And then I'll, I'll go through and I'll, I'll say, okay, it, can I put this in dialogue and will it make sense in the conversation? And does it need to be said at all? Like I go through a mm-hmm. list of just quick questions is this pertinent? Does it move mm-hmm. the story along? Would the character know this? Does the reader need to know this? And does it make sense to be used in, in dialogue at all? Um, and if it en- enriches that that conversation, then then I consider keeping it. But otherwise, it probably just gets the axe and goes into the big the book that's even bigger than the, the book that I publish, which is the world building book like volumes after volumes like Tolkien wow. had on the history of, of everything that nobody gives a crap about except for me. No, I really want to see this movie. Does everybody just want to see this movie so bad? And I'm not even, I'm not even a huge Tolkien fan. Is it already out? It's probably already out. I'm embarrassing myself. It is out. Yeah, it's out. It's been out for a while. Yeah, I think. Well, scratch that. Edit that, Michael. Feed that <laughs> no, to the no, show no, goat. No, it's an important thing. <laughs> Feed that to the show goat. Because, I mean, we're talking about the number one world builder <laughs> of all time was mm-hmm. Tolkien. I mean... Few have have built worlds as intricate 
as as he had maybe like Robert Jordan <laughs> and George Martin. Like, yeah, I would just add one question to or to yours if I was going back through every scene, Chris, and that's have I already said this? Because <laughs> I feel like that's my that's my thing where I'll just overemphasize and try to just like keep explaining yes. my point, and when really I've already said it five other times. Like <laughs> they really really need to know this. I swear. <laughs> So I told them a hundred times in the course of 300 pages. Exactly. So at least once a scene, I'll be like, okay, yeah, I've said this elsewhere. <laughs> Cross that out. Yeah, there, there should be some sort of checklist for major events and whether or not you've mentioned it to the reader at all. Right, right. <laughs> How much do you guys spend on weather? I'm curious. Do you, do you use weather at all? Is it, is it just drive a plot? Is it to ever set a, a feel or a mood? Um, for me, okay, so like mm-hmm. I, would, I would translate mm-hmm. to, that to climate first. Um, climate informs, you know, what, where the character's mm-hmm. from, or what kind of um, environment they've lived in. And that, that can often help me bring out some of the themes or, or some of that character's, um, you know, general, you know, personality. But weather, weather, I don't think falls mm-hmm. for me so much into the world building as much as it does into to plotting and, and, and addressing a certain feel that I want from a scene. Uh, but but I guess setting in the same way can can highlight how you want that uh, that particular part of your your story to feel. So I mean, for me, mm-hmm. I if if there's a bad guy, you know, you've got your bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you could throw them in in a much darker environment, mm-hmm. you know, that that has storms all the time because it's by a volcano or something like that. But uh, for me, uh, yeah. the the setting informs that much more than than the actual inclement weather. Uh, happening that's just a, a on the fly decision if i'm like well this person's angry right now so yeah. i'll give them a storm i remember mm. in um the seclusion the, the description of, of her trying to garden and how brutal the weather was and how and you know it was already set in a probably a climate that was already naturally a little bit warmer because it was set in arizona arizona yes. so yeah arizona um, tucson who wants to live there i mean especially in 70 years <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i Seventy years now, it's terrible. Yeah. I'm, I'm I was born in Phoenix, and I hate going there because yeah. it's so yeah. damn hot. I grew hot. up in Texas, and we had yeah. summers that felt like you know the baby step of what you were describing, and it felt very. Mm-hmm. That was a part of the novel that that made me uncomfortable. It made me physically, it made yeah. me physically like sweaty. <laughs> And I think that was intentional. I feel like looking back on it, and I was at the time that the weather often reflected how a character was feeling, whether they were feeling mm-hmm. stifled mm-hmm. or suffocating or feeling a little bit freer. I think that as she, uh, you know, moved into other places where all eyes weren't on her, she yeah. was, there were breezes, she was feeling freer. She was, you know, looking out over, yes. you know, uh, scenery and actually able to yeah. enjoy it. And then, um, so I feel like I tend to tap into weather and, and how it's affecting the protagonist mm-hmm. in their own skin um, mm-hmm. so more to put whoever's reading you know mm-hmm. in their body but not necessarily you know because it matters mm-hmm. if it's raining or not um, and I, again I think climate's important too like um, you know just setting the trends for the overall setting of where this person lives not mm-hmm. if it's a rainy day or not so for instance in in my book and then also in another one that I'm writing like it's a it's a large portion of the story that the weather is changing consistently or that there's you know air pollution that sure. people need to be mindful of whether they need to be yeah, inside it's almost a right it is so it's like roll up your windows the air pollution is toxic for the next 30 minutes until this breeze passes <laughs> <laughs> so gosh can you guys wait it's going to be so exciting 
but uh yeah yeah so i i think it's a mood i think weather is definitely a mood setter but it's i've never used it as mm. like oh it's cold today you know but it's got to affect the story somehow or set the mood yeah it's a dark and stormy night right <laughs> <laughs> i've never started a scene that way is that is there something wrong with that i mean <laughs> i just haven't yeah i don't well, maybe it's, I think it's something dark and stormy going to happen in your scene. Like, is it is it foreshadowing something? As long as you don't say it was dark and stormy, and you show me that it was dark right. and stormy, I'm okay with it. Mm. Or unless you're doing, if you're writing a comedy, go ahead. Yeah. And that's like one of the few rules that I'll ever say that anybody should or shouldn't write a certain thing. I'm you know, I'm one of those staunch defenders of write whatever the hell you want, and damn what everybody else says. But um, that one is is a little bit overused. All right. Well, let's see if there's anything else good here. Do, do, do. When do you when do you guys recommend starting or, or ending your your world building phase of a project? Is it something that you you start out with like heavy or do you do it as you go or do you you know get through some stuff and you go, whoop, I need to go flesh out some more uh, of this world or is it a combo of all three? I feel like this is the pantser plotter question again, you know, right? Because if you're a pantser then and i mean you gotta like lean into the panther part you would never really have done any world building it happens live while you're riding but yeah to me it's it's a mix of both so i i think about it a ton and then i start writing and then i end up having to research more than i thought i would after my initial research phase is done right but you know i'll get into a panther phase and then have to take a break and go go dig around a bit and think about what the setting's really going to be and what the the world's going to, what the rules are going to be. I feel like I'm kind of all, all three, you know, I'll usually do a little bit of world building, but, but then I, you know, I discover a lot of it as I write and sometimes I'll, you know, a new aspect of the world will come out as I'm writing and then I'll go back and, and make sure that I feel that sensation strong enough in these scenes that I've already written. And so I do a lot of that. And then, you know, bring it forward as I'm working on my next scenes. So, but generally I think I have overall ideas and I do tend to just take notes. Um, you know, maybe if a new rule emerges that I need to make sure to follow for the rest <laughs> of the book. But I'm, I mean, I'm a, a pantser all the way. Plotting is really hard for me, guys. Yeah, and you said you've been doing <laughs> so, it lately. How's that going? I spent a good five hours last week outlining. You guys would have been so Ooh. proud of me. I, I outlined the whole... I uh, see the whole first act and then I think about half of the second act and then and then there was a lot of wine (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah I'm I'm gonna give it a shot again next week yeah (laughs) get through the rest I find that plotting only happens for me if I'm in a meeting I don't want to be in and then I just pretend that I'm writing notes diligently about the meeting that I'm in but I'm actually just that I'm plotting. You know that's, that's interesting. Time. So it has to be like we have to put we have to all put ourselves in more of those situations of like the pressure you felt when you were a kid <laughs> in math class and you just started like doodling on the side of your notebook. Yeah. It's a creative outlet, yeah. right? That's what they say. Yeah. See, yeah. I'm the complete opposite. <laughs> like I was just I was just clicking over here to uh, the current project that I that I'm working on with uh, with Kendra. The the outline document has six thousand words in it already, Man. and. And the, the world building Bible that I've come up with has 15,000 words in it. And I'm like 10% of the way through working through that book. Um, but that's been really interesting This in this case, working with, with another author, whereas my strength is, is much more on this side of, of, of world creation. Um, and I think it's really interesting. I'm like creating a world that she can go into 
as an author and then start writing it, mm-hmm. which has been a really interesting experience because I get to just play with the one part that I really, really love. And then, uh, then we, you know, we will I'll probably come back through and be like, yeah, that totally checks out with what I was thinking. And, and that does too. And, and, Oh, what if we add this here? And then she can tell me, no, <laughs> <laughs> that's really cool. But yeah. Outlining for me is, is, is the only way that I can keep myself uh, on track because when I start writing, it's not like I'm even conscious anymore and, and anything comes up, gets onto the page and I go, Ooh, shiny. What about that over there? Ooh, shiny. What about that over there? So without it, without the structure, I just, I find myself just lost in that world. And then on an, on an adventure that, you know, other people may not want to go on. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I, and I don't think pantsers are any different. They just can't stop themselves. So, you know, I still write myself into corners and I'm like, this is not where I was supposed to end up. And then it just makes way more work in the long run. Yeah. Um, but I feel yeah. like you guys have those happy accidents more often where you're like, yeah, I wrote myself into a really wonderful corner instead of I have to go rewrite 200 pages because it makes no sense. Oh no. I do a lot of that too. I I thought it was just me. (laughs) (laughs) I am working through save the cat, which I read years ago and I just wasn't, I don't know, in the right place for it. And now I'm, I'm loving it. So I'm rewriting the, I'm trying to do my outline to the 15 beats and that's been kind of liberating in a way. Yeah. Yeah, that is a good one. I'm starting Chuck Wendig's uh, Very Fine Tale, I think it's called. What I feel bad about is that I feel like I do a ton of plotting. I just don't put it on paper. It's in my head all the time. Ah. And I just kind of keep revisiting it. Like it's a screenplay that I'm I'm rewriting and rewriting and rewriting at 4 a.m. in the morning laying in bed. And then that's cool. I also and you guys talked about this on the, the first podcast, but in in getting to that point where you your character sort of take off and take over and you have these happy accidents to me i feel comfortable if i've created really strong well-rounded characters and then wherever they take me i usually i usually feel good about that's a good point um, but i can tell i can tell if they have some holes in mm. their their personality because they'll just start wondering away and, and i don't really know what the, the point is but if they are really well-rounded characters that i've built up in my head really well and get to know them really well and I could have a copy with them and tell you all about them, then the places they take me are right for the story. Well, and that, that, that goes back to, to, to your world building. I mean, characters are a big part of it, mm. if not the whole thing. Um, fantasy introduces a whole bunch of new con- concepts, but, and the same with science fiction. But ultimately, when we're talking about story and story structure, knowing your character is the world building. And it, it, that's that's the world mm-hmm. that the reader sees is is through that particular character's eyes. So that's that's the entire world itself. So I think if you have developed yeah. that character that can withstand all of those things, then you're 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 bound to have a story, no matter what you know corner you paint yourself into, so to speak, because the character is compelling. You know, mm-hmm. the plot the plot points are mm-hmm. are pretty much inconsequential if you've got a character that's compelling. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's where um, I, I feel like I can always learn more about rounding out. So as much as I enjoy reading books about crafting story, to me, I find more usefulness out of reading authors that do a better job than I do of, of character building. That's a good point. So build your characters, everybody. Don't spend five years on world building like I did with my first one. <laughs> But then when you do publish and you are extremely famous, you can make extra money off of that sort of stuff. Like Deb Harkness has, you know, entire All Souls World Reference Guide. It's like the glossary mm-hmm. of, 
of her. Yeah, that's that was something that me and Kendra actually talked about. She goes, uh, once once I start writing and we start getting into this project, you should continue working on the world building oh, thing. Yeah. And we can market yeah. that as well. <laughs> like, I'm like, yes, that's a great idea. And then we can get it <laughs> illustrated. Absolutely. Yes. Rachel, why don't you go ahead and give us uh, where we can find your work? Um, and, and, and where our readers can, can find your book and, and so on and so forth. Thank you. So I'm at rachelsparks.com and my name is spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L, like Michael, sparks.com. And, um, I'm Sparky the author on Twitter, which is usually where I hang out. So, um, all the other social media is great, but you'll find me there first. So, um, I'm on Amazon and your local bookstores and Barnes and Nobles and all that jazz. Drop me a line sometime. I like pasta recipes. I encourage right on. I encourage people to reach out with pasta recipes. <laughs> <laughs> and just for kicks, Jackie, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find your award-winning book? Thanks so much, Chris. Um, pretty much everywhere you can find it on Amazon. You know, all the all the big players, uh, Barnes and Noble, uh, IndieBound is always preferred. Support your local indie bookstore. Um, so if those of you who don't know what IndieBound is, they'll pretty much just order the book through any local bookstore uh, that's part of their cooperative. So do that. Yeah. And you can find me at jcastlewrites on Twitter. And I'm also there more often than not. <laughs> and yeah, I'd love to connect. Um, the Seclusion is a dystopian science fiction novel that takes place in America in the year 2090 and draws from current events. A uh, bit of a cautionary tale there. I'm working on the sequel, which is currently crowdfunding. So if anyone wants to become a backer, go look at my Twitter account. Lots of lots of options. <laughs> and Chris. Well, you know, don't go out and buy my book just yet. I'm probably going to rewrite the darn thing. So uh <laughs> but you know generally you can find me uh here at writingblock.com or on the podcast uh my old website christopherleeauthor.com is still in the works and i imagine it probably won't be up until i release another book hopefully by the end of this year uh but for the meantime <laughs> you can find me at christ lee ike e-i-c-h on twitter or just anywhere uh, writing block, you can find me as well. I like to stay hidden. I guess, you know, one piece you can go read <laughs> is part of our first writing block anthology, Escape. Uh, my story, The Gilded Tower, is featured in that anthology. And uh, one day that might even be a book nice. series. Uh, I did some heavy world building on that short story, I'll tell you what. <laughs> I enjoyed it. it was great. Oh, thank you, thank you. That, comes, that means a lot coming from the award winner. I do think you need to start your intros, Jackie, with um, your award-winning author you know you can say i'm award-winning author jackie castle all right all right settle mm -hmm. down <laughs> <laughs> yeah. did i make you blush yet come on you should be flaunting that you know all right i'm gonna work on it i'm gonna work on it all right. all right well for anyone else out there come join us at writing block we've got a newsletter we've got a slack channel we've got a facebook page we've got you know we've got all sorts of stuff in the works and our second anthology coming soon yes yes deception well, all right, guys, right. signing off today on this episode of the Writing Blog Podcast with world building and writing. We hope you enjoyed this editor's edition episode of the Writing Blog Podcast. Our series will continue featuring interviews with authors and more detailed discussion aimed toward helping all indie authors navigate the difficult roads of the publishing industry. We hope you will join us at our website, writingblock.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, find a copy of our short story anthology, Escape, and read detailed articles about the indie author experience. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Writing Block, no K. Thank you for listening, and happy writing.